Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. So here's a question that I'm sure you've asked a ton of times. I'm just guessing. Um, But why is it that intoxicated people make such bad decisions? Because I've never heard the correlation um, where somebody says, like, it is a good thing that I was drunk. Otherwise, I might have made a really bad decision, right? Like, I'm just... I'm assuming, because I don't have, like, scientific data, but there's, there's not a correlation between, like, being inebriated and good decision-making. So, like, like, why is it? Why do we make bad decisions uh, when you've had too much to drink, um, if that's you? And if it's not, just judge everybody else. But, like, if you've been in that place before and you've got stories that are funny, um, some people have stories that are tragic, others have stories they can't remember. Um, but, you know, like, physiologically, it, you know, increases some things in your system that, um, act as stimulants, and so your impulsiveness goes way, way up. I don't need to tell you any of this, but impulsiveness goes way, way up. Your inhibitions go way down, and so you get on the verge of a decision, and like all of the consequences are disconnected in the moment. So like you have no idea like where this is headed and what's going to happen and what's you know on the other side of this. You're just able to make a decision without thinking about it. Because the other thing it affects is your prefrontal cortex, right? And that's the place where your rational decision-making is housed. And so all rational decision-making is gone, and you are able to make a decision without even thinking about it. Um, unfortunately, Ron White one time was um, arrested for um, intoxication, and he just made this statement, I had the right to remain silent. I did not have the ability to remain silent. And then you, you know, unfortunately, maybe have this text the next day of like, you know, what, what happened? Was that me? There's a video. Like, however that goes down. So how does that relate to you? I'll tell you in a second. So we're in part three of better decisions, fewer regrets. And here's what I'm trying to do all four weeks. And then, by the way, it's not a message on alcohol consumptions, just to make that clear. But better decisions, fewer regrets, and connecting really good questions with really good decisions, which oftentimes is overlooked. The better the question that you ask on the front end of a decision, the better decision that you're going to make. So my whole goal in this series is to get us to actually ask these questions. We're going to deal with the third one today, answer them. And then if we're like really on it to actually act, to actually do something, to actually change something. And for some of us, we might be right on the verge of something right now. So the timing couldn't be better because here's what all of us know. Our decisions do not just impact us. They impact a lot of other people around us. And in fact, it's not just our decisions that impact people. It is the regrets even that we carry from those decisions. And sometimes, I mean, you know this, the ripple effect can last a decade, two decades, even be multi-generational. This is why the writer of Proverbs, uh, wisest man ever potentially didn't take any of his own advice, as I've said, said this in Proverbs 27, 12. The prudent or the wise see danger and they take refuge. 
And what that means in regard to decision-making decision is just this. They look up ahead and do what sometimes we have trouble doing when all of our emotions get tied around a, a decision. It's called focalism, where your, your appetites or your emotions get tied around what you should do, and it just, you lose your mind. And so he's like, the wise people, though, are able to pull themselves out of that. And they look at a decision not based on the immediate outcomes, but the ultimate outcomes. Like, what's the right or wise decision based on my preferred future? And recognize that what I decide today in the present eventually will be a story I tell about my past. And it's going to influence my future. So the wise see danger and they take refuge before it gets there. But the foolish or the naive, they just keep going and they pay the penalty or they suffer for it. Basically, they give in and listen to the naive salesman that all of us have in our mind. You know what I'm talking about. When you really want to make a decision, and it's not a decision you would you know, justify to anybody else, but somehow for you, you think it's different. I'm different. My situation's unique. I and mean, that's always kind of our go-to line. And we move forward with a really dumb decision that we wouldn't try to justify with anybody else. He's like, that's what the naive do. They give in to the naive salesperson in their own mind, and they give reasons that aren't even really reasons because they think this thing is gonna make them happy only to find out that what made them happy today made them unhappy tomorrow. So what we've done is looked at several questions kind of connected to that verse. Okay, so how do we do that? How do we see danger and take refuge before we get to the other side of a decision and have regret that we didn't really wanna carry? And so the first question is this, week one, if you want to go back and listen or watch, am I on the verge of this decision being honest with me? And you really have to ask it two times. Am I being honest with me? You just lied to yourself, ask it again. Am I being honest with myself? No, no, really, what, why are you actually doing this? Why are you actually deciding this? And what we said is this, you need to answer that question honestly, even if the truth makes you uncomfortable with you. Even if the truth makes you feel bad about you temporarily because you will never get to where you want to be until you accurately account for where you actually are. But it's hard. Like, it's hard to ask that question. And the second question is this. What story? On the verge of this decision. Because in the moment, it's complicated, right? There's a lot at stake. There's pressure. People have expectations on us. We've got hopes and dreams and wishes, and our circumstances start to align. All of that converges, and it's so complicated and so emotional that you have got to step back and ask this question, because eventually, all of that emotion and complication will be reduced to a couple sentences. And so when your decision is nothing but a story you tell, what story do you want to tell? What story do you want told about your life? Because you get to decide, no matter what's happened to you, what kind of story you want to write, and you write it one decision at a time. So with all that you feel in the moment, eventually this thing is just going to be reduced to a couple sentences. What story? What story do you want to tell about this moment, about this decision, about what you decided to move forward with? And then that brings us back to my initial question. Okay, you had too much to drink. Why is it hard to make good decisions? One of the things is you are able to ignore all of the internal and external cues. They just go out the window. But what's crazy is that we make decisions sober and we do the exact same thing. We choose to ignore all of the internal and external cues because we want to move forward with it anyway. Like if you've had too much to drink, 
you, you kind of move forward and ignore your conscience. What's crazy for all of us and really like our mind's all there and we've got to make a decision and you, know, you would think that we'd be rational in the decision-making process and yet we willfully choose to ignore our conscience and just move forward with it anyway. So the question is this, and it's a really important question. On the verge of that decision, the financial decision, the relational decision, the business transaction, are we going to go forward with this? Am I going to prioritize this? Like whatever it is, is there attention that deserves my attention? And by atten uh, attention, what I mean is that internal, like, I don't know, that internal hesitation, that thing inside of you, is there attention that you need to pay attention to on the, the verge of making that decision? And here's the thing about it that makes it hard for us to lean into because it's so easy to justify not doing it because you may not even know why you feel that. Like you're on the verge of a decision and you just feel this thing, but you don't have a verse for it. And honestly, we're so good. Like I would call a lot of us like escape clause Christians. If you are Christian, if you're not, just point fingers at our hypocrisy. But like we get on the verge of a decision and we're like, we'll, we'll try to find any loophole we can. Like I don't know, there's not a verse for that. And yet something in us knows or, or we convince everybody else around us so they're on board with the decision. And, and there's no like smoking gun that we can point to, but there's just a hesitation. There is just a tension inside of us, a red flag. And what you have to do on the verge of any decision is pay attention. Do not ignore, do not brush aside, do not justify the tension you feel. Pay attention to it. And then here's the other thing that happens, and we're all guilty, including me, is that somebody, like there, there's some information that does come our, our way, there's a relationship, somebody says something to us, and then we, if it's something we really want, our heart's set on it, there's a lot of emotion, it's shiny, it's new, I just want it. That we will ignore their information based on who they are, based on where the information is coming from. It's called the fallacy of origins. So let, let's just be honest for a second. Um, somebody has told you something, you didn't like what they told you, so you do investigative work quickly in your own mind to find all of the ways that you can discredit them. Yeah, nervous laughter. Like, just be honest, you've done this, okay? Stop lying to me. I know you're in church, you're used to lying, but just be honest for just a second. Like, you'll point to them and like, have you seen their kids? I'm not listening to that, you know? Have you seen their relationship? Have you seen how jacked up their finances are? Did you, like, you will find anything you can about them to discredit the thing that they're saying. And so we all have the tendency to dodge the truth by discounting the truth teller. The problem is, let me just be really blunt, um, really good information that may have the potential to save you from a regret can come from an idiot that God loves and is made in the image of God. But I'm just saying in your terms, they're an idiot, and yet there's information in my decision-making process that I need to pay attention to. So he, here's what I want to tell you to do. If something bothers you, and we're so good at ignoring this, let it bother you. If you're on the front end of a decision and you don't know why, you can't. And again, you could go justify it and your friend be like, no, 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 ignore that. This is the right thing for you. But you, you just know. If it bothers you, let it bother you. Pay attention to the tension. One of the best examples of this, and one of my favorite characters, just like last week was one of my favorite characters, but David in the Old Testament has this incredible narrative where he reveals the importance of paying attention to the seemingly irrelevant, inconvenient, and even at times seemingly irrational tension to do what 
Nobody around would even really understand, but you just know. He just knew. About 1,000 BC, I mean, you probably know the story. I'm just going to tell you this real quick. Anytime I narrate a lot of stuff, I mix names up at the end. I, so anyway, so they evaluate me after every service. There's a few things I had to clean up from first service. So if I interchange the names, hopefully you'll follow me anyway. All right. So um, uh, David steps onto the pages of history. It's about 1,000 BC. Many of you know the story. Um, big family. He's one of a bunch of brothers. He's marginalized because he's kind of like, you know, he's just this young teenage boy. Nobody expects a lot from him. And against all odds, a prophet shows up, kind of spokesman for God around that time, shows up to his household and ultimately anoints David, teenage David, as the next king of Israel. Only problem is Israel already had a king. His name was Saul. And Saul, like how, you know, the way kingdoms worked at that time, Saul would be king and then his son Jonathan would be king and it would go down through the line. And so this was a threat to his throne because eventually Saul hears about it. But David continues to kind of operate in obscurity for a little while and then he jumps onto the stage of national consciousness when he defeats a giant. He becomes an incredibly renowned warrior, hero. He kind of becomes, um, they make him mythology a little bit, but everybody loves David, writing songs about David. Like David is the guy, he's got a pretty legit brand in 1000 BC. And it gets to the place where David ends up in Saul's court, works for him for a while. But, but Saul is so jealous, he ends up forcing David out of the kingdom. He wants to protect his throne. He wants to protect what should be his son's. He kind of, saw honestly, eventually loses his mind. But David ends up on the run and he surrounds himself with a bunch of men, a bunch of warriors who were still, um, they were still at a place where they were loyal to David because, again, David had a huge reputation. David was an incredible warrior, incredible leader. So there David is with hundreds of men opposed to Saul's thousands of men because he still had the army of Israel. And they were on the run and they were fugitives. But Saul is after him to kill him because he's so jealous. And eventually, because Saul is absolutely consumed with taking this guy down, even though David had helped his kingdom immensely, Saul is so consumed with taking him down and killing him, he gets intel on where David is at. And in 1 Samuel 24, verse 1, it says, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. We got intel, he's there, now's your time to go take him out. So Saul took 3,000 abled young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep pens along the way. I love this little detail. And a cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. Which, and these are just weird things I think about. Can you imagine the pressure of that moment? with Saul, like, if you've ever been in a caravan with a couple cars and like eight people, like trying not to be the one that has to stop is like a big deal, huge pressure. I mean, imagine, so you got 3,000 men hey, can you guys just hold on for a second? I need to run into the cave and relieve myself. And so Saul goes into the cave while 3,000 of his men wait for him. And then it says this, this is so crazy. David and his men were far back in the same cave. Which, what are the chances? Now, real quick, before I get there, this is just where I wanna make fun of Christians for a second. And I can do this because I am one um, professionally. So here's... Here's the thing. This is where, and somebody just needs to say this. This is the scenario where Christians get so weird. And, and honestly, it can become so destructive to decision making. And part of this is I'm not wired this way. So just excuse me for a second. But all the signs that we're trying to look for all the time, and we'll use language like this is just a God thing. It's a God moment, which I just, you know, I get it. I'm not trying to 
I know you've had those, but, but the way that we try to frame it sometimes around a decision that we want to make is just, is just ridiculous. Because when you want something bad enough, it is crazy the lengths that you will go to to play the God card to justify it. When God's like, I would never sign my name to that decision. That was not a God moment. I was not speaking. That verse was not for you. I don't care how many times you listen to Elevation Worship and that song. That I was not sending you clues. That's just a bad decision, right? We are like, I just know I need to get out of this marriage. God wants me to be happy. And so it's crazy. I made the decision, got out of the marriage, just knowing this is what God wanted. And the next day, it's crazy, a sign. I met this guy out of nowhere. On Bumble. It was crazy. Like, I don't even know. It's crazy. <laughs> or then I came across this verse or the song, and I knew, like, you just need to understand this is the cynical part of me, but there's a lot of truth in this. You are terrible at interpreting what God is saying when you want something. <laughs> so, so there David is in the back of the cave. He had told all of his guys to scatter because they heard Saul was coming. So they're all, you know, all over the place, different caves. David is in the back of one of the caves with his guys. And there, and therein walks Saul and they see the silhouette coming near them. And Saul doesn't see them because his eyes are still adjusting from the sun. It's a dark cave. He's walking in. But David and his men, they've been in the cave for a little while. They can see very clearly. So they move back as far as they can, watching Saul come in, turn his back to them so he could relieve himself. His face is toward the mouth of the cave. And what are you going to think in that moment? This is a God thing. This is God's moment. God has promised David the throne and he served up his enemy right in front of him. I can take him out. I can expedite this whole process. This is literally the moment where God's will is going to be fulfilled. Like we should just pray and thank God for, you know, leading us into this. I mean, come on, what are the chances that Saul walks into his cave and there David is to take him out? Like what else could this be? other than God orchestrating the situation. And so David's men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, and then they quote what David had said early, earlier, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Basically, David's men are in the back of the cave whispering to David, hey, remember when you said that God promised you the kingdom to be the king? This is your moment. Like if there was ever a moment where it was teed up, this is it. If ever there was like, I mean, almost supernatural, God aligning everything. I mean, if ever there was a moment that pointed to what needed to happen based on God's promises, David, this is it. And one guy has to die. And most likely that whole rest of the army, David's gonna follow you. Like this is the moment that you have been waiting for. And apparently... It's exactly how David saw it. So verse four, David, back of the cave, creeps up right behind Saul with every intention of killing him because it's God's will. And God set this up. And then just as he's about to take Saul out, there's a hitch. There's a, I don't know, there's a tension. And the closer David gets to this moment the more he feels the tension. And the thing is, the moment he makes this decision, it's going to change everything for him. It's going to change everything for his men who are living as refugees 
who are living as nomads and they all want to go back to their homes. They want to, they want to get this thing over with. They're tired of running from Saul. And so this is the moment that David can end all of it. And yet this is the moment that David does something extraordinary that so many of us would struggle to do. He allows in this moment what bothers him to bother him. And he's within seconds of making a decision that's going to change his destiny that's going to change things historically that you can't even imagine. And within seconds of making that, by the way, a decision that everybody would have agreed with. A decision that when he made it and walked out of the cave, literally, he probably would have been given a standing ovation. Everybody would have applauded him. Everybody would have been convinced. Yeah, this is God's will. This is what God set up. God promised you, David. And yet with all of that, Somehow at the last moment, seconds away from this decision, David gets clarity and recognizes. Yeah, God promised me that one day I'd become king. But the timeline's not up to me. The outcome isn't up to me. Orchestrating the future is not up to me. And ultimately, God's the one that puts Saul in place. And so if he's gonna fulfill this promise He's going to have to do the replacing because David in this moment is thinking, I'm not going to replace what God has put in place. And in spite of all of the pressure, and can you imagine how much pressure from his guys to go, Saul, or David, come on, man, make the decision. Can you imagine the expectations? We want to go home. We want you to end this. Saul's crazy. He's maniacal. Come on. You are in the perfect position. And yet with all of that pressure, all of those expectations, David listens and pays attention to the tension and he changes his mind at the last minute. And this is so important. Here's what all of us have in common with David. And here's what David recognized just in the nick of time. I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know how this is going to turn out. All of, my, all of my guys are convincing me that they do. Hey, hey, David, kill the king, become king. David, kill the king, become king. They're all so assured. I don't know the future. I don't know how this is going to end up. I don't know how, despite the fact that God promised me, I don't know how this scenario ultimately is going to wrap up. And that's our dilemma. Like for some of us, you can look back on decisions that you've made relationally, financially, saying yes, signing on the dotted line, deciding to move anyway, giving into that thing, prioritizing, whatever it was. And it's so crazy. I mean, all of a sudden, we look to the, the other side of the decision, maybe five weeks later, five years later, and like, what, what was I thinking? Why didn't I pay attention to some of that common sense? There was something in me that kind of knew. Why, why didn't I lean into that? And the reason is... The justification for moving past the tension that you feel and moving past maybe even some of the other voices in your life, the way that we are able to do that is this. We convince ourselves that we know the outcome of the decision. And so it justifies us bypassing the tension and bypassing other voices in our life because we think, no, 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 I know how this is going to end. I know how this is going to end up. I'm different. I'm unique. My situation is unique. And so we push past all of it thinking that we know what's coming next. And here's the thing, if you don't get anything else that I just want to impress on your heart and mind, you cannot accurately predict outcomes. You don't know the future. I don't know the future. And we have enough track record to know that. And you start to move into dangerous territory when you ignore the tension you feel because you believe that you're certain enough of how it's going to turn out and you're not. 
You can't predict the future. You can't predict the outcomes. I mean, have you ever been disappointed? Disappointment is just the outflow of mispredicting the future. And David in this moment pays attention to the tension, which is the, because when you ignore the tension, you set yourself up for unnecessary regret. And here's what I know about life. Life has enough stuff and enough dysfunction. We don't need to create it by ourselves. And this is the moment, as David pays attention to the tension, he avoids the unnecessary disappointment in this moment, and he avoids the unnecessary regret. And so back to David. David crept up unnoticed. <laughs> he decides not to kill him. He pays attention to that tension. But he's there already. So he's like, I'm just going to hack off a piece of his robe. And so he does real quick. However he did that, that was stealthy because Saul didn't know about it. So he cuts that thing, heads back to the back of the cave. Saul, Saul goes down. Just imagine this moment for a second. Imagine the drama of this moment for a second. Cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. David is inches away. And this is the moment he recognizes, I don't know the outcome. And here's the other thing I think David understood that we talked about last week. David recognizes that this moment that is so full of emotion, so much pressure, so many expectations on him. But one day all, those, all that pressure is going to dissipate. All the expectations are going to subside. And this moment's going to be a story that he tells. I think David's thinking of the future to go, eventually my grandkids are going to crawl up in my lap. Like, hey, hey, grandpa, tell us the story of when you took down Saul. How did that happen? He was taking a leak and his back was to you. You didn't know you were in the cave. And you snuck up behind him and slid his wrist. Grandpa, you are so brave. That's not a story he wants to tell. And this is the means by which David paid attention to the tension and changed his mind mid-course. Verse five, afterward, David was conscience-stricken conscience stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe because at some level, it was still in their culture an act of rebellion against the king. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. And I gotta imagine they're thinking, well, can you let us do it then? Because we wanna go home. I get you have a problem with this. We're, we'll be fine. And then David keeps going, or I'm not gonna lay my hand on him for he is the anointed of the Lord. But his guys are rolling their eyes like, David, are you serious? Are you still hanging on to that? Saul's trying to kill you. He forced you from the kingdom for no reason. He's after your life. You've done nothing but serve him and his kingdom. Well, I mean, are you, are you still holding on to that man? Are you serious? And this is the moment that David, against all pressure, recognizes, no, no, I know God's promised me something, and I know it feels like that God served him up, and maybe even it's his will, but I, I just know. God put him in place, and who am I to replace him? And so it says that, verse 7, with these words, David sharply rebuked his guys, didn't allow them to attack Saul, and Saul left the cave and went his way. And then this is so powerful. Verse eight, then David went out of the cave <laughs> and called out to Saul. So imagine Saul does his thing, walks out of the cave, mounts his mule. He's got 3,000 guys with him. They're ready to take off. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a voice that they recognize. Everybody knows who David is. Everybody's aware of David, the renowned giant killer warrior. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Saul just hears David. Hey, Saul. 
hey, Saul, at the mouth of the cave, just coming out into the sunlight. And he's holding a piece of Saul's robe. And it says that David, in that moment, in an incredible act of humility, bows down before Saul. Saul's checking his robe. Yep, it's gone. (laughs) David's holding it up. Got thousands of eyes on him, literally. And everybody in that moment knows exactly what didn't happen. Everybody in that moment knows exactly what David decided not to do. And then David concludes with this really powerful statement. Saul, may the Lord judge between you and me, basically. God's promised me something. God's got a plan, God's got a will, God's got a destiny. But I'm gonna wait and I'm gonna allow him to determine the outcomes. And may the Lord, Saul, may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but I'm not gonna do it. And my hand's not gonna touch you. And this is an incredible lesson from David, and I'm not, I mean, it would be insensitive coming from me, but you you can pull this from the life of David, who has multiple examples, extraordinary examples of this, but the story of your life is not gonna be written based on what other people have done to you. And I know some of those stories are layered, and they're intense, and there's been a lot of therapy sessions and counseling, and they're heartbreaking, and I would never lessen or marginalize any of them. But ultimately, the story of your life is going to be your decisions and how you respond to what has been done to you. And if I can give you this one encouragement for the life of David, because I'm not even going to pretend to know your circumstances or be able to relate to them. Do not allow someone's bad behavior to become an excuse for you to make a bad decision. That'll become a part of your story for the rest of your life. So I don't know if you know how the story ends. Saul just sits there and listens to David. And he watches him as he like waves the piece of his robe. And Saul is absolutely humiliated. And what's crazy is the reason that Saul is humiliated is because of David's humility. And he has no recourse in this moment. There is no way that Saul can hop off his mule, tell his guys, go attack there probably would be a revolt. The only thing that Saul can do, mighty king, you know, leader of Israel, is get back on, tell his men we're leaving, and they just leave. And then seven chapters later, seven chapters later, Saul's in battle and he's leading the Israelite army against the Philistines. And this is life. This is so interesting to me. And a random archer catapults his arrow into the air, and it was random. They had no idea that Saul was even in the crowd, and his arrow randomly pierces Saul. And Saul doesn't want to die at the hands of the Philistines, so he decides to fall on his sword, and he dies in battle that day to the 
to the Philistines just seven chapters after this incident. And here, like if you could somehow back up from the story, I think this is where if you would have come to, to David, David would have been like, hey God, if you could have just told me that in the moment, that would have made that other decision a lot easier. Like if you could have just whispered in my ear, hey, just so you know, David, don't worry about it. Seven chapters later, it's gonna be fine. You don't need to stress about this decision. You don't need to sell out. You don't need to ignore your conscience. You don't need to bypass all of that. Like just do what you know the internal tension in your heart and soul is leading you to do. And it's gonna be great. And in seven chapters, I'm gonna orchestrate this whole thing and fulfill what I promised. But life doesn't work that way. And David was in the middle of an impossible dilemma and did not know the future. And David had no idea what hung in the balance of his decision to pay attention to the tension. I don't know what's coming for you three chapters later, seven chapters later, what's next in the story. Here's what I do know about me and about you. You have no idea. You have no idea what hangs in the balance of your decision to pay attention to the tension that you feel right now. So here's the question I wanna end with that I wanna ask you, and this is, this is a difficult question because when your wishes and dreams and hopes and desires line up with circumstances, it's hard not to slap God on that to go, this is God's will and destiny for my life. And there's gonna come those moments where it's gonna be hard to say no because you want it. And it seems to line up and you got a verse and a song to go with it. But here's what I wanna ask you on the verge of that relational decision, the financial decision, the am I gonna go, am I gonna say, am I gonna sign on the dotted line, am I gonna get back at them, am I gonna prioritize this, am I gonna leave, am I gonna move, am I, gonna, I mean, whatever the decision is, nobody's gonna know about it just for the season, it's gonna be fine. On the verge of that decision, is there attention that deserves your attention? Is there attention that you need to pay attention to? Is there a thing rising up and it's so easy to justify because we're great at this? You don't have a verse. You don't have a clear cut, like moral, immoral, but you know. And here's the thing about it that is so important. When we ignore the tension, my dad used to talk about this so often in different terms, but I never forgot it. When we ignore the tension on that decision, in essence, what we're doing is taking responsibility for the outcome ourselves. And I think in some cases, God kind of looks down to go, I tried to do everything I could to get your attention. I was working overtime. I was doing everything I could to, to stop you just short of saying yes to that, of going that direction, but you ignored it. And one of the things that is so powerful about God, he is never gonna force his way on you. He's never gonna force his will on you. And when you decide to ignore the tension, you take responsibility for the outcome. When you decide to pay attention to the tension, this is so far, God takes responsibility for the outcome of your life. And it is not, as I've said a thousand times, the promise of a fat bank account and nobody gets sick. It's the promise that if you're a follower of Jesus, God does have a will and a destiny for your life as somebody made in the Imago day, and that he is working that plan and working that story. And when you decide to submit and follow, it may not wrap like a Hallmark movie, but God has something extraordinary that is gonna make a difference for all of eternity. And when you decide to pay attention to the tension, he takes responsibility for the outcomes of your life. 
And on the other side of that, the byproduct is what you will not get any other way. The byproduct is peace. That I serve a resurrected Savior that commands nature and nature obeys and talks to dead people and they listen and touches the blind and they receive sight and holds all things under his care. And he is perfectly capable of leading and directing the outcomes in the future of my life. And so when I make a decision where I'm not sure how it's gonna end and it's everything that my heart doesn't want, but I decide to lean in to the capable and loving hands of my heavenly father, there is peace that comes on the other side of that. And there is the thing that all of humanity is searching for. There is love, joy, contentment that is not gonna be found by taking things into your hands. So if you can't predict the future, why not trust the one who can? And for some of you, I get it. You're on the verge of a decision. We're like, well, I know if I do this, I know what God's gonna do. No, you don't. You have no idea what God, you are a terrible predictor of the future. And so am I. You have no idea the outcomes, but here's what I'm gonna promise you. There is going to be a moment where your life is gonna be hijacked by a dilemma that's gonna be hard and that dilemma will become a defining moment for your life and your story. And the moments that are difficult are when all of the emotion and all of the, I want this and you're a heart and this is gonna make me happy and this is what I've wished and dreamed of and I've got all of my friends on board and I can support and everybody's cheering me on. And I know there's a tension that may be God trying to get my attention. In fact, that tension might literally be the voice of God to keep you from making a decision that you're going to regret, to keep you in the moment with all the emotion from making a decision that will undermine your own future and your own happiness and your own peace. Here's what I'll promise you. I mean, as you full on follow Jesus, there's going to be moments. There's going to be a lot of moments. Jesus will take you by a thousand bad options. But there's going to be moments where you look like a freak because you decide to pay attention to attention that nobody else is paying attention to. Nobody else cares about. You don't have a verse. Everybody can justify it. You can make the decision and go on your way and they're like amazing, amazing. And, and you know, and you can't really convince anybody else of it, but you just know. So, what tension do you need to pay attention to? Because oftentimes that tension is the tension that God's gonna use to write the story of your life. And if you've never embraced Jesus, listen, you don't have to believe what we believe and we're gonna love you anyway. You're not a project, you're a son or you're a daughter. You're somebody made in the image of God who's loved by God. But my hope is that maybe one day you would embrace the message of Jesus, that he lived a perfect life, that he died for our sins, past, present, future, walked out of a grave alive. And I can't emphasize this enough. In the midst of all of the crap and dysfunction of this world, the moment you begin to follow Jesus, he will initiate a will and a destiny for your life that is better than any story that you're running after. And for the rest of us, if you've already made that decision to follow Jesus, I'm telling you, those moments of tension when you decide to lean in, those are the moments where God oftentimes is revealing and writing the story for your life. And in many cases, he's revealing an option that you never even would have bumped up against or never would have even seen. 
And it's an invitation of, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to obey God. And I'm gonna trust him with the outcomes in the future of my life. So as we end all over the room, if you would just stand with me. If you would just bow your heads, close your eyes. Just, I know this may be weird if you're kind of new to the church thing, but just out of respect for what's happening in this moment, I just wanna ask you this one question. Maybe in the middle of, on the verge of, just coming out of a decision. Relationally, financially, signing that deal, deciding to prioritize that thing, to move, to engage in that habit, because you know, you're different, it's gonna be fine. Whatever the decision is, I just want you to ask this question. I want you to ask it as brutally and honestly as you possibly can. Is there attention that deserves my attention? And I'm gonna decide to have the courage to pay attention to it because you think you do. You think you know the outcome. You think you know the future. You have no idea what hangs in the balance of your decision in this moment to pay attention to that tension. No idea. So Jesus, give us the courage to do what for some of us we know you're prompting us to do. Give us the wisdom and clarity to know what that is. I know this hits a thousand different ways among those watching online, listening via unfiltered radio and in the room. So I pray you would contextualize it, you'd make it personal, and that for some of us, this would be the catalyst for a new direction in our lives. And we pray all of this in Jesus' incredible name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.